We appreciate the presence of everyone this morning. I'll invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 22 today. Matthew chapter 22. As has been said a couple of times uh, this morning, the first day of the new year, and we do invite people, encourage people to think about their lives and think about the upcoming year and the last year, the, the year just gone by, and uh, do a little self-evaluation and uh, just ask, what, what can I do better? Uh, what can I improve, in, especially in a spiritual way? Uh, how can I become stronger? How can I be more diligent? How can I strengthen my commitment to the Lord? And how can I manifest that, that commitment that I've made more consistently in the coming year than I have in the previous year? And so uh, just to encourage each other to do that. In the last several weeks, we've been talking about uh, trying to develop our thinking uh, so that it conforms to Scripture, to think scripturally or think biblically about things. That the Bible is God's Word. The Bible contains the truth. And so it will inform us as to how we ought to think, if we want to think the way God thinks, how we ought to think about our lives and our place in the world and the world around us. And that will help us to make informed decisions and that will help us to live a life that's pleasing in God's sight. And so I've been trying to think biblically about lots of things in the world, especially some of the ideas, some of the things that are especially pressing and relevant in our, our world today. Today we want to think about what the Bible says about human government. And so, it may seem to you, like it does to me, that we are perpetually in an election cycle. There's always some kind of election going on. Maybe we're in a sort of a temporary respite uh, from that right now. But it's not going to be long before it ramps up again, and we're going to be bombarded with political commercials on television. And we're going to see the uh, signs from the candidates along the roadside and turn on the, uh, the Internet. We're going to see all the commercials and things like that from the candidates that are running. After all, we elect a president every four years. We elect senators every six years. We elect representatives every two years. So what that means is as soon as I'm elected, the first thing on my agenda is how can I get reelected? And so we're always in this political cycle. We're always in uh, this uh, election season. Our form of government uh, invites the public to participate. And, and we do. We live in a democratically elected uh, republic. And so the, the government invites us, encourages us to participate in the election process. And, and of course, many, many people do. I was trying to think of a good illustration. What, what can I compare the religious climate in our country these days? What can I compare that to? And about the best thing I could come up with is uh, it's, it's a kudzu feel of, of politics. You know, uh, how kudzu just, just takes over, over the field and just grows and expands, and pretty soon the whole field is covered up with kudzu. Well, that's politics in our world. I mean, the whole country is just covered up with it. And, and so the Bible has something to say about human government, and we need to learn what that says and, and, and think in a biblical way about human government. For some people, it's just all important, and uh, it's the best way to avoid complete disaster. You see, if we can get our people elected, and they enact our, enact our policies, 
Well, then we'll have a wonderful life in, in a wonderful land. And if we can just keep those people out of office and keep them from enacting their policies, well, then things are going to be so much better because if they get in office, oh, well, it's just going to be the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> and so it just becomes all-consuming. It takes over people's lives, and um, they're convinced that all our problems can be best solved with a political solution. Well, like we said, we want to think biblically about civil government. What do the Scriptures say? What does Jesus say about human government and our relationship to it? Just make a couple of observations as we begin. The Scriptures do say something about human government, and so we need to learn it and to adopt it, even though it may be different from the way some people, or maybe the way we have thought about human government in the past. And so we offer this as a starting place, a starting point in our developing uh, biblical thinking about human government. So Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask Him a question. Is it lawful to give tribute or to pay tribute to Caesar or not? That's verse 17. Well, Jesus perceived their malice. He knew they were trying to trap Him and discredit Him in the eyes of either the people or the government. And he said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him went away. And so they're trying to trap Jesus. And you can see their, their thinking. Now we're going to ask Jesus this question. Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? Is it lawful for us Jews to pay tax to the Roman government? Now, if he says no, he's got to say yes or no, right? If he says no, well, then the Roman government is going to be after him. Our problem with Jesus will be solved because they'll take him out. <laughs> if he says yes, well, then the people, the Jews, are going to turn against him because they don't want to pay taxes to the Roman government that is occupying the land and is oppressing them. And so we're going to put him in this difficult situation, and there, there's no win for him. But Jesus answers the question perfectly. Show me a coin. And so they show him a coin. Whose image is stamped on the coin? Caesar's image, okay? It's got Caesar's image on it. That belongs to him. You give Caesar your money, but give to God the things that belong to God. What does he mean by that? Well, he means give yourself to God. You see, we are made with God's image stamped on us, so to speak. We're made in God's image. And so we belong to God. Give your money to Caesar. That belongs to him. But give yourself to God. In a sense, Jesus is saying we live in two kingdoms. We live in Caesar's kingdom. And we live in God's kingdom. We live under two kings, so to speak. We live under Caesar, and we live under God. There are certain elements of Caesar's kingdom that belong to him. And so give those to him. That's fine. Those are not going to pass over into heaven with us anyway. But there are elements in our life that belong to God. And so we need to make sure that we give those things to God. He's saying we can live in those two kingdoms simultaneously, 
And we can live in the kingdom of Caesar without necessarily being disloyal to God. And we can participate and we can act in the kingdom of Caesar, for example, by paying taxes, without being disloyal to God. But when the lesser king, who is Caesar, or we don't have a king, we have a president, we have a government, and so when the lesser king demands from us what actually belongs to the greater king, well, then we must resist the lesser king's demands and obey the greater king. In other words, when our human government requires of us things that are contrary to God's will, things that actually belong to God, well, then we need to resist the human government's requirements and devote ourselves entirely to God. Acts 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. We've been, we studied the book of Revelation not too long ago. That's what the book of Revelation is about, isn't it? Obeying God rather than men. Don't worship the beast. <laughs> you know? Don't be loyal to the beast. Be loyal to God, even if it brings you into conflict with human government. We're going to have a little bit more to say about that as we go along. And so, thinking biblically about human government. When you look at what the Bible says concerning our responsibilities to human government, we might be impressed with how few responsibilities it lays upon us. And so we look at some of those. We looked at this passage a moment ago, so we'll move forward. We're to, to pray for our government. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 1. Paul tells Timothy, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties, you know, when you beseech someone, you entreat them, uh, and, and, and then prayers, petitions, thanksgivings, be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tr tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and gravity. Paul tells us, he teaches us Christians, pray for kings and all who are in authority. We need to be praying for our government. We need to be praying for those who occupy positions within our government. Notice that he says in verse 1 that these entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. <laughs> all of them. Pray for all of the people in your government. Kings and all the, the, those who occupy a position of authority. Notice also that among the things that we are to pray, entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving. <laughs> when was the last time you thanked God for your king? You know, and all who are in authority. But that's what he says. Uh, that I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made for kings and all who are in authority. Now that's, that, that might come as a little bit of a a surprise to us. Now, that doesn't mean that, that Paul always agreed with the policies of the government. Certainly not. In, in fact, he teaches this at a time when the civil government was not always favorable toward Christians. He's executed under the reign of Nero shortly after this letter was written. And so surely he would not have agreed with the policies of the Roman government, either local policies or empire-wide policies. And yet Paul teaches Christians to pray for all who are in authority. Now, the content of the prayer is this, that we might lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and gravity. 
So we're praying for our human government that they allow us to lead a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity. I think some versions say, say gravity. But in, in uh, godliness and, and dignity. In other words, we pray that the government will allow us to live our lives as Christians without endangering ourselves, without, without threatening us. We can go about our lives as Christians, living out our faith in, in tranquility and, and in peace. And we can live a godly life in, in peace. That we can worship together in tranquility. That we can evangelize, we can tell others about the gospel in tranquility. That we can have a Bible in, in our possession and we can read it and we can study it in peace that we will not be required to violate our faith. Now, if the government requires us to do that, okay, so be it. We must obey God rather than men. But our prayer is that our government so govern that we can go about our lives as Christians, that we can be disciples of Jesus faithfully in uh, quietness and tranquility. Now, let me ask this question. Of all the ways that we could accomplish that, of all the ways that we could accomplish an, an environment or a situation in which we could go about our lives as Christians in peace, of all the ways we might accomplish that, which way is the most effective? Isn't it prayer? Isn't that the most powerful way to bring about a situation in our country, in our government, where we can live our lives as Christians in peace and tranquility? Well, that's what Paul tells us to do. Pray for those things. That's the most powerful, the most effective uh, weapon that we have in our arsenal. That's one thing that we are required to do as Christians toward government. But the second is that we are to submit to every human institution. We see that over in 1 Peter chapter 2, and beginning in verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. A similar statement is made over in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And so obey the law. That's, that's what he's saying. Sub, submit yourself to the governing authorities. And so, and so obey the laws that they pass. Be good citizens. He says, do good works, cooperate with the government as much as in you lies. And so verse 3 of Romans 13 says, Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid. And so do you want to be free from the government's threat? Be a good citizen. Do good. Obey the law. Cooperate. Do good works. And you'll have praise from the government. Now, if we want to be threatened by the government, if we want the government to come down upon us in a very hard way, well, then, well, then resist. 
and be an evildoer. And the government will come down on you. And so what we want to do is we want to win the government over so that they will rule in a way so that we can live a quiet and tranquil life by our good behavior. We're cooperating. We're obeying the law. We're, we're doing good. And so the government sees us as a positive influence in society. Now, not as a, not as a threat. You can imagine a situation where you know, people in, in government are there. They're considering taking some action. And somebody says, well, you know, those Christians, they, 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 they resist at every turn. Everything we try to do. They resist, they don't want to get a law, or they can say, you know, the Christians, well, they're good citizens. They do good. They try to cooperate. So let's take that into consideration. So we want to win the government over by being good citizens. We want to obey the law. We want to cooperate with government. We want to do good works. We want the government to look on us with favor. Peter says that we want to silence the, uh, the uh, ignorance of foolish men. There, there are occasions, for example, in the book of Acts, for example, Paul goes to the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, and you remember the, the big riot that erupts in the city of Athens, the big commotion that erupts there because Paul is preaching the gospel. Well, eventually they're brought before the magistrates. In verse 37, you brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples or blasphemers of our goddess. These men haven't done anything wrong. And so Paul, by his good works, is putting to silence the ignorant uh, accusations that have been made against him. You remember Jesus before Pilate. Pilate says three times, I find no fault in him. And so what we want to do is by our good deeds, by our cooperation, by our obedience to the law, put to silence the ignorant accusations that could be made against us. Now we'll say again, where there is true conflict between government and God, we must obey God rather than men. But we also make the point that mere inconvenience is not true conflict. <laughs> and so we want to cooperate with the government just as much as we can. Where there is true conflict, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, but we cannot flaunt the law merely because it's inconvenient for us. Submit to every human institution. Be good citizens. Obey the law. The third thing we'll mention is this. I hate to bring it up, but it's right there in the text. <laughs> we, we, we are called upon to pay our taxes. Well, that's the very point in Matthew chapter 22. They come to Jesus and they ask Him, Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? And you remember His answer, Give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. Give to God the things that belong to God. But the very context in which that statement was made had to do with paying our taxes. You might remember Romans 13 and verse 7. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due. Jesus himself paid tax. Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. Jesus himself paid the tax that was required of him. Now, I don't know many people that like to pay taxes. I, I, I think I've talked to one person in my life who said he liked paying taxes. I was a little surprised by that. Most times people hate paying taxes. His, uh, his reasoning was this. We live in a great country, and if that's the cost, if that's the price I have to pay to live in this country, I'm glad to pay it. 
Well, I, I thought, well, that's, that's not bad reasoning. <laughs> but most people don't like to pay taxes, and yet we're taught to pay them. We ought to pay them whether the tax money is wasted or spent on projects that we object to. Uh, Jesus paid taxes and encouraged His disciples to pay taxes to the Roman government, even though it was the Roman government who would, uh, would uh, oppress them and persecute them. And so we're called upon to pay our taxes. Render to all what is due them. And then show respect for our leaders. You know, I think this is especially needed today with social media, and I'm not a big social media person, but with social media and all the things that are said about our leaders on social media, well, this is maybe especially needed in our situation. To hear some people speak, the candidates or office holders on the other side of the aisle, whatever side that is, the devil incarnate, you know. But Paul says we need to honor our leaders. And so Romans 13, verse 7, render all, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. First Peter uh, chapter 2, Peter tells us to honor the king. Honor the king. You might remember in Acts chapter 23, Paul is being questioned. He's, he's brought before the high priest and he insults him. He calls him a, a whited wall. A whited wall is a, a hypocrite. Somebody that looks good on the outside, but inside is, is just rotten. In verse 4, he's called to account. The bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And he said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it's written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Quoting from Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. And so we need to be careful in our criticism. Again, I'm not saying we've got to agree with everything our leaders uh, uh, teach or enact or the laws that they pass, certainly not. But we need to be careful that we don't cross that line and dishonor them and the things that we, that we say. Well, I want to raise some questions here at the end of our study together a little bit. You can see there, there are really not very many obligations or responsibilities placed upon us in Scripture in our relationship with human government. We're, we're to pray for them, and especially pray that we can live a quiet and tranquil life, that we can go about our lives as Christians without, without being threatened, that we, we're to obey the law, we're to submit to every human institution, we're to be good citizens and obey the law and co cooperate with the government as much as possible. We're to pay the taxes that the government requires of us, even if we disagree with how they're spent, even if we think they wasted and so forth. And we're to show respect for our leaders. Well, what does God want to see from human government? What, what does He expect from human government? Well, especially in the Old Testament, we see that God expected truth, justice, righteousness from human governments. And when human governments were unrighteous, He held them accountable. It seems that God especially detests pride, and self-exaltation. And so we saw in our study from Isaiah how Babylon exalted herself uh, to, to a position equal with God. I, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of the king and there is no other attitude of Babylon. And God especially detests that attitude. And so He deals with them. He holds them accountable. And we see this, for example, when God deals with His own people. Think about 
Amos chapter 5 and verse 24, he's talking to his people and says, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so what does God expect from his people? Justice and righteousness. But he expects that from the pagan nations as well. Jeremiah 4 verse 1, In truth and justice and righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in him. Psalm 106 verse 3, How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. So he he expects all nations to practice justice and uphold righteousness. And when they don't do that, he may give them time to repent. But if they persist in that, God will deal with that. He'll hold them accountable. He's done that many, many times, of course, and expect he'll do that even today. Here's another question for us to consider. Do the scriptures call on Christians to politicize the gospel and the church and establish a Christian political state in which spiritual duties are required by law and enforced by the police? Do we find that in scripture? And so make a political agenda out of the gospel. Make a a political party out of the church. Have people that that enact enact laws based on their understanding of what Scripture says and enforce those laws by the police. Is that that what the Scripture calls upon Christians to do? Not that I can see. Christians are to obey the government's laws and go about their lives fulfilling their spiritual duties, leading a quiet and tranquil life in godliness and dignity. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. We're to be faithful unto death. Revelation 2, verse 10. We're not to worship the beast, you know. Not to, not to uh, do homage to and obeisance to and be loyal to human government in a greater way than God's kingdom, God's, kingdom, uh, God's government. Do we really want people in Montgomery or people in Washington to define our spiritual duties and require them by law? Do we want them to interpret the Bible, make applications based on their interpretation, enact laws that apply the Bible according to their view, and enforce those laws through the police? I don't think so. We want to be able to live a godly life, free from government threat, to go about our lives as Christians in peace and tranquility, to be faithful proclaimers of the gospel, even when the government is antagonistic to us. That's what we want to be able to do. And that's what the Scriptures call upon us to do, to live godly lives, to be faithful proclaimers of the gospel, and pray for a situation in which we're able to do that. There's a third question. Do the problems of sin and immorality in our culture have a political solution? Can we solve the sin problem by passing laws... Can, can they be resolved by the imposing laws on people that don't want them? <laughs> Sometimes we think that if we could just pass a law and make these people do what, well, then we'll have a, a much more spiritual, moral climate. Well, does our sin problem have a political solution? Well, passing laws forbidding sinful behavior, I think, would have a limited effect. Passing laws is not the answer to our sin problem. 
If it were, God would have provided instructions about how to go about it. The solution is for Christians to be the salt and light of the world. You remember that statement in the book of Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus encourages us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so that's what we need to do. We, we need to be the salt of the earth and light of the world. And by our example and by our lives, change the hearts of people. And in that way, of course, then we change the moral climate of the world. I'll give you this illustration. Back years ago, we uh, lived in Midfield, and I went down to the Midfield Community Center. They have a basketball court down there. And every Tuesday night, played basketball. There's a young African-American man there named Cliff. And that was a time when there was a lot of controversy about the Confederate flag flying over the state house in Montgomery. I said, Cliff, what do you think about that? He said, well, Bob, uh, he called me Rev. <laughs> Rev, it doesn't really matter what flag is flying over the Capitol if people's hearts don't change. I thought, that's, that's a good point. It's not that he was not concerned about the flag. What he was concerned about is people's hearts. It doesn't matter what law you pass if people's hearts don't change. And that's really what, there's, there's the solution to our sin problem in the world. Changing people's hearts. We become righteous when hearts are changed. And we can change people's hearts through our behavior, through being salt and light and... Uh, being faithful proclaimers of the gospel. The truth is, even this may not be enough to save our society from ruin, and in that case, we give place to the justice and wrath of God. Well, we'll conclude. Jesus said we live in two kingdoms, but these kingdoms are not equal in standing in our lives. We live in Caesar's kingdom, and we live in God's kingdom. And in our lives, those two kingdoms, they, they don't have equal standing. One is superior to the other. One kingdom is of this world. It's established by men. It will pass away. The other kingdom is not of this world. It's established by God through Christ. Peter calls it the eternal kingdom. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11. Now Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, seek first His kingdom. And so you see, there's two kingdoms not equal in our lives. There's one kingdom that we ought to seek first, that we ought to put above the earthly kingdom. And we ought to be devoted to that more than and uh, in a greater way than this earthly kingdom, whatever it might be. Seek first his kingdom, and His righteousness. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together and to worship You and to remember the death of Your Son on the cross and to study from Your Word. Help us, Father, to, to, to shape our thinking according to Scripture. Help us, Father, to think biblically about all things in our lives, whatever those things may be, to shape our thinking, to shape our minds about what Your Word has to tell us. Our Father, we, we understand that we live in this world, and we are citizens in an earthly government, in an earthly nation. And help us, Father, to appreciate the, the blessings that we receive from that. Help us, Father, to live in harmony with the government around us, Help us to be good citizens. Help us to obey the law. Help us, Father, to remember to, to pray for them, 
to pray for those who rule over us, to be thankful for them, as uh, your word suggests that we do. But Father, we pray that we understand that this kingdom is not the superior kingdom, but your kingdom is superior, that your kingdom is everlasting, that your kingdom has been established through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us understand, Father, that all the kingdoms of men uh, pass away, but there is one kingdom that will remain forever. Father, we pray that we will be loyal, faithful citizens in that kingdom to the one and only King, who is Jesus Christ. And so help us, Father, to be solely devoted to Him above all things. It's through Him that we have the hope of eternal life, through His cross, and it's in His name that we pray these things. Amen. If you're subject to the